Hi, this is Ken Robinson. Get ready for a great conversation. But remember, every Tuesday, there's a new edition of Audio Antiques from the K-Rob Collection, featuring highlights from the golden age of American radio on many of these same podcast platforms. Welcome to the Ken Robinson Podcast. Get ready for conversation and information from the people who are making a difference. Hosted by veteran Hall of Fame radio and television journalist, Ken Robinson. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our listeners in the United States and around the world. On this podcast, we're going to take a look at crime. How can you keep yourself safe if you live in an area that has a lot of violence and death? Also, do you enjoy a good crime novel? Well, I'm going to speak with a famous author about what makes an enjoyable whodunit story. It's all coming up right after this break. There are forces that don't want you to vote, especially if you're young, old, or a minority. They're putting up obstacles to keep you from the ballot box. Know your rights and register to vote. You can do it quickly and easily online at plclothing.store. Take a stand and let your voice be heard. Panoramic Lifestyle Clothing, where a vision moves in all directions. Due to popular demand, Panoramic Lifestyle Clothing is expanding their line of celebrated quality t-shirts. Check out the new horse and trauma tees for men, the rebellion and vampire tees for women, and the rose and rebellion crop tees for kids. Plus, your old favorites are still there, like the Panoramic Tiger and the Panoramic Virtual Reality and UFO. Remember, Panoramic is a vision that moves in all directions at plclothing.store. Our theme music was created by H Beats, who can make any presentation sound better. That's H Beats with a Z at hbeats330 at gmail.com. Gun violence takes a big toll on Americans, traumatizing millions of citizens and creating large financial and health burdens. According to statistics compiled by the Giffords Law Center, over 1.2 million Americans have been shot in the past decade. 36,000 Americans are killed by guns each year. That's an average of 100 per day. 100,000 Americans are shot and injured each year. With that in mind, how do you avoid being shot? How can you keep yourself from being wounded or killed when shootings happen every day in the United States? Well, let's get some advice from Tim Dimoff, President and CEO of Sachs Consulting and Investigative Services Incorporated, one of the largest private security contractors. Tim, shootings seem to happen in good and bad areas these days mass shootings seem to be increasing. How do we avoid being shot? A couple things that you want to do to avoid getting into situations where you can be harmed, including being attacked physically or shot or robbed. And that is, number one, if you can, shopping and traveling and moving around with others increases your chances of being safe more than when you're alone. So being alone is one of the big ways that can get you into danger because criminals like 
and target people that are by themselves. Secondly, it's where you are walking, where you are driving. Are you going in areas like an alley? Are you walking down through an alley to take a shortcut? Those type of things. Avoid areas that isolate you or can conceal you from others seeing what's going on. And thirdly, look around. 360 degrees, when you're walking and moving around, be looking around. Look behind you and beside you and constantly be looking 360 degrees. The reason for that, criminals want to have the element of surprise. Just pull your cell phone out, walk across a parking lot with your face into that phone and never looking around. Those are the type of things that separate victims from non-victims. So you gotta got to be aware of your surroundings. Absolutely. Be aware of, be looking, and don't look like a victim waiting to be a victim. Now, what if somebody, you're walking on the street and somebody is, uh, you know, on the street too? Is there a way to tell that they, they might be armed? Well, it's pretty hard to tell if someone is armed. Many times people that are armed are going to have their hands inside a coat pocket, inside their jacket, inside uh, behind a coat that's hanging where they don't have their arms out in the open. So many times they subliminally telegraph that they're armed when they have those kind of physical gestures. So when you're out and uh, on the street, you should think about what you would do if someone did attack you or did draw a weapon and, and point it toward you? Yes. You want to always be thinking, if I'm walking and someone out of the clear blue approaches me or starts to approach me, you constantly should be thinking ahead of time, what direction would I go, can I go, where is my escape? Where can I go where there are people, lights, uh, noise, uh, other things going on that don't isolate me? We've had victims actually run in the wrong direction, away from lights and people, instead of towards them, which would have protected them better. Now, if somebody does pull a gun on you, I've I've heard from police officers, they say cooperate. Is, is that a good idea? I have a little training we do, and basically, someone approaches you with a weapon. I always tell everybody, you're not going to be able to fight it, resist it, and the police are correct. Provide them with your wallet, your purse. But the difference is, I tell people, give them your wallet or purse or throw the wallet and purse down at their feet and say, here you go. And as soon as you release that purse and wallet, turn around and run. I call it, when you're done, you run. And it works very effectively. It's not like the criminal, once they have your purse or wallet, is going to chase you down the street. They've accomplished their goal, and you've reacted fast, and you've already started running, so the chances of them shooting you, hurting you, or coming after you are very, very slim. So when you're done, you run. And when you run, it's very hard to shoot somebody when they're running, isn't it? It's not like it is in the movies. No, it's very hard to hit your target. 
And if you want to add a little more safety, run in a small Z pattern where you're not running straight line. You're running to the sides, right and left, a little bit, changing it as you're running away. But once again, if you throw down your valuables and you run, rarely have we ever seen a criminal chase the person down or even shoot at them. Now, is it a good idea to carry maybe a fake wallet or an empty wallet or maybe a, a, a broken cell phone, you know, if you find yourself in high-risk areas? People have done that, and quite honestly, they've been pretty successful with it. Uh, you know, you have a wallet, maybe you put a 5 or a $10 bill in there and, you know, some other papers and they don't know it's fake or real, and uh, yeah, we've we've seen uh, it work very effectively. So uh, not a bad idea. Also, we've seen a lot of carjacking, especially around gas stations and stores where people just hop out to get gas or hop in, you know, stop to, to run into a store. Uh, how do you handle something like that when you come back from the store to your car and there's somebody standing there with a gun? The, the bottom line is they want the car, you give them the car, okay? And that's simple. They can have your car, and you have your safety and health. I don't think there's a big discretion on that. But if you're in your car and someone jumps in and points a gun or knife at you and tells you to drive, there's only one solution to that in my book, and that is you hit the accelerator and you smash the car into the closest pole, tree, fire hydrant, building, truck, doesn't matter. You accelerate, smash the car. The car is the key to the crime. They're not going to have a discussion with, with you when you smash the car. They're going to be interested in getting out of the car and getting out of there because that accident crash has caused a lot of commotion. It's going to attract a lot of people including the police. And if you don't do what, uh, if you don't crash the car and you just do what the, the bandit says, you could be kidnapped or tortured or whatever. Is, isn't that a possibility if you, if you don't crash the car? You could be kidnapped. You could be, have to go to 10 ATM machines. You could be raped. You could be beat. You could be all sorts of things. Once again, accelerate the car, smash the car. That's the solution to a carjack. And finally, uh, considering how dangerous many uh, our big cities have become so dangerous in so many areas, is it a good idea just not to, to do as little business as at night as possible? You want to avoid the bad areas, uh, absolutely. And if you do have to drive through a bad area, you want to stay on the main streets. You don't want to go down side streets and different things. You also want to be aware of that red lights leave enough room between your car and the car in front of you. And if you have to go around a car, if you have to go through a red light, whatever, do it. If that means your safety, you can always explain that to the police. Worst scenario, a ticket's a lot better than having your life taken from you or injury or whatever. You have to think 360 degrees safe whether you're walking, driving, or anything. Always think ahead and have an escape route. Absolutely. 
Well, very good. Really appreciate the advice. Maybe we can uh, save some uh, lives this weekend. I'm sure we can if they listen to just a couple of these safety tips. They work. Tim Dimoff of Sachs Consulting and Investigative Services, Incorporated. It's one of the largest private security contractors. And Tim is considered one of the nation's leading authorities in high-risk workplace and human resource issues. As a consultant to human resource directors and law enforcement, Tim Dimoff has been called upon to examine evidence from crime scenes, victims, and to develop offender profiles. Well, while actual crime can be very terrifying, fictional crime can be fun. Up next, we'll talk with a best-selling crime novelist right after this. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Ken Robinson. It's estimated that around 20 million crime novels are sold every year. Usually, most of the top 10 fictional books are crime thrillers, accounting for up to 36% of book sales, more than any other genre. Richard Montaneri is an American crime author who debuted with his novel Deviant Way, published by Simon & Schuster back in 1995. It focused on Cleveland Police Department homicide detective John Paris. It won the Online Mystery Award for Best First Mystery, and Richard has since published many more novels which are available in almost 30 languages. That includes his Philadelphia crime series featuring The Rosary Girls. That's a police procedural thriller set inside the homicide unit of the Philadelphia Police Department. Richard Montaneri is a Northeast Ohio resident, and we're very glad to have him in our studio. Nice to be here, Ken. Glad to have you. You're a writer and you're based in Cleveland Heights. Right. Live in Cleveland Heights, born and raised in Cleveland. Deviant Way, and it's a murder mystery. Right. Murder mystery set here in Cleveland. Um, kind of in the tradition of Sea of Love and Blue Velvet and, uh, and some others that I really liked. Uh, Richard Price being one of my favorite writers, I tried to emulate him in the writing of this book and um, hopefully I've accomplished that. Mm-hmm. I-, I notice it's been likened to uh, Silence of the Lambs. Doesn't hurt. <laughs> 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 that's one of the <clears throat> excuse me. That's one of the absolute best literary thrillers ever written. So that uh, if you can shoot for for Silence of the Lambs, why not try it? No, I was very flattered by that uh, comparison. Mm-hmm. Deviant Way is about fictional Cleveland police homicide detective John Paris as he tries to track down two killers. Um, been a cop here for 17 years, kind of burned out as you might expect after that length of time. Mm-hmm. Um, divorced, fighting that demon. Uh, still madly in love with his ex. Still madly in love with his daughter. Um, hitting a bottle a little bit too much, trying to cope with uh, with all those things that a lot of cops, I think, really live with mm-hmm. every day. Mm-hmm. Right? Can you uh, tell us a little bit about the plot without ruining ruining it for us? Not uh, too much. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, basically, it's um, uh, the central characters in it are uh, Matt and Andy Heller. They're a Shaker Heights couple. Been married about seven years, getting a little bit bored with each other, so they decide to try uh, playing a few kinky bar games, uh, going out together but separately with... Uh, Andy, uh, the wife, is a kind of a closet exhibitionist, and her husband's a closet voyeur, and so that kind of ends up to a deadly combination. Um, unfortunately, there's a pair of uh, serial killers, another couple on the loose in Cleveland at the same time, and they inevitably uh, they do meet up. 
Mm-hmm. I understand that the serial killer in the book uh, actually removes a patch of skin from his victims? Yeah, that's one of their uh, signatures. They look for women with rose tattoos, and, uh, and they decide to collect them uh, as they collect their victims. Mm-hmm. Not nice folks. Yeah, I see. It's <laughs> a little gritty in there, sure. and a little uh, down-to-earth, a little mm-hmm. earthy, uh, but I guess that's the kind of thing uh, good murder mysteries are made of. I think so. Uh, someone asked me in a book signing what makes a mystery, and, that, and really, it, you take a dead body and someone trying to get away with it, and that's what all mysteries really are. Mm-hmm. Um, the people that have influenced me the most, I think, are filmmakers, uh, mm-hmm. more so than other novelists. Uh, mm-hmm. Hitchcock, of course, um, Scorsese, and just watching the way they put a plot together and the way they conceal things from the viewer. Uh, to me, I found that magical, and uh, the challenge to put it on paper is, is, is very real. Mm-hmm. A lot of people think that... Um, you write a thriller or a crime book because it's easy. I d- <laughs> All I say is write one, <clears throat> submit it to an editor, and you'll find out everything you're doing wrong. You know. Well, I've heard that the uh, book is based loosely, maybe very loosely, on the, the Kingsbury Run murders that oh, occurred no. in Cleveland. I hadn't no. even heard that. No. You heard that. Uh-uh. Well, the critics are talking about you, you know. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay. In that case, uh, yeah, it was. <laughs> no, uh, it's, it was totally made out of whole cloth. I was going to say cut out of whole cloth, but I won't. Um, I had not heard that at all. Mm-hmm. I'm familiar with that story, but uh, uh-huh. but no, I guess um, Northeastern Ohio is so ripe for storytelling, and yeah. there's so few novelists here that I guess if you come along with a story similar to something, it'll <laughs> it'll seem more similar than it really is. But uh, what was surprising and gratifying to me along the way here is that no one really objected to the book being said here. Hmm. No one said, good story, could you put it in Chicago? Um, mm-hmm. They all said, Cleveland, great. So I think it's a great time to be from here, especially in, in this business. That's true. Cleveland is so sensitive about its image these days that mm-hmm. we don't, you know, a lot of folks don't like negative publicity or anything right. that's dealing with, you know, the grisly side of life. But mm-hmm. it's kind of refreshing to, uh, you know, to, to, to see a novel with a Cleveland setting, and, and it's just ripe right. with uh, Clevelandisms mm-hmm. in there. Sure. Uh, Les Roberts has written about this town very, very well. Uh, Terry White, another good novelist here. There, there's, there's talent here, mm-hmm. um, but I don't think that Clevelanders think it's recognized nationally or internationally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was very fortunate to uh, go with Simon & Schuster in my first book. Uh, very fortunate they did, they did not object to the book being set here. Um, I've sold British rights, Japanese rights, and German rights very soon, so... People all over the world are going to be reading this story set here in Cleveland, and I think that's terrific. I was going to ask, why, why is that, that it seems like every, uh, every good murder mystery that's published or every uh, movie that's, that's published mm-hmm. about a, you know, a, a popular murder, it's always in Chicago it or is. New York or Los Angeles. Right, right, um, or London or any big cosmopolitan city. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you think there's a bias among uh, uh, executives and maybe the, the major media centers like New York and Chicago where... You know, nothing happens, uh, nothing interesting happens out in the heartland. It's, it's all got to be uh, New York and Chicago when it comes to writing and fiction and storytelling. I think that's changed. I really do. I mean, I think we have such a positive image now, this city. I think even we, I'm a lifelong Clevelander, don't realize it. That I think people are really, they're just not laughing at the jokes anymore. And it's this has become a tourist destination. And when I start, started writing the book, I wrote <clears throat> three pages and I sent it off to an agent. That's all I had. Mm-hmm. Um, and the agent got back to me and said, do you have any more? Please send me more. So <laughs> I had to sit down and write it. <clears throat> and, um, and at that point, I said, well, I have to set this book somewhere. Why not here? And, you know, I've talked to other writers here, and they have been a little self-conscious about saying he made a write on Lee Road or he went through the flats. And the thing about it is, to re- the rest of the world, that's going to sound exotic. Chester Avenue mm. sounds exotic to someone in yeah. Tokyo. They just think, well, <laughs> this, is a, this is an interesting place to be. And uh, the flats and Beechwood, and I get Akron, Summit County plays a part. And uh, so most of, uh, 
you know, most of the people I've run into have said, oh, great place to set a book, really interesting. Uh, I was going to ask, how do, how do you research uh, when you're writing a novel? Do you, do you have to actually go out and, you know, go to some of the, the seamier bars where your, you know, your story takes place? Or, <laughs> Dirty or, work, Ken. <laughs> but I had to do it, yes, uh, to go for that authenticity. Um, a little bit. You know, I'd, uh, you know, I'd been to bars, you know, often on my whole adult life and uh, went back to a few in the writing of this book, and absolutely nothing has changed. Uh, maybe the name of the bar, but that's about <laughs> it. None of the games are all the same. Um, but a lot of the stuff, like the... Um, one of my uh, characters is in the cosmetics business, so I studied that and uh, talked to a number of police officers about procedure and stuff, and uh, and you know a couple of homicide cops about some of the pressure of the job, and uh, you know when when would the FBI get into the story uh, after two murders, after three murders, and uh, and surprisingly the FBI even after three murders that are considered serial murder will still not jump into the case, yeah. um, stuff like that, but. You know, most of the stuff has come from just studying, reading, and, and talking to folks, yeah. Mm -hmm. when, you, when you start out writing a novel, do, how do you develop the, the story idea and then carry it out? Do you let the, the character lead you mm -hmm. through the story, or do you lead the character through the story? Sometimes. Uh, I'm not a very good outliner. Everybody works different. Um, some novelists outline 100, 150 pages of outline. Um, and then they just sit down and write the book all the way through. I tend to write as I, as I go. Um, but what I've done is, um, is I wrote the jacket copy for the book, which allows someone to read about the entire story without it being given away. Mm -hmm. If you'll ever read jacket copy, you notice they give you the whole thing, but they don't tell you who the killer is, and it's kind of an ad for the book. Um, and that allows me at the beginning of a book to not know who the killer is, but still have the story pretty well fleshed out on paper. So I keep going back to that. But what I've discovered is that minor characters, you know, become bigger characters as the story goes on based on their personality as you write them. Um, if you need a foil in a certain scene and a character is out there, you can bring them back into the story to facilitate bringing the gym bag into the room if you need them you know so yeah characters to, to give you a, a long answer to this one it's i think characters do do become their own size in a book as you go along mm -hmm. is there any similarity between maybe you and uh, jessica on murder she wrote uh, oh. <laughs> when jessica goes around she gets involved in all these murders and everything have just, you ever uh, no, no, had just, occasion to jessica's a lot braver than i am <laughs> <laughs> no no i just sit in a corner and make this stuff up you know um there are uh, there are people who do go out and get involved, and, and there are quite a few like police officers and certainly lawyers writing novels now, and they, they sort of write from the inside. I sort of came at it through the side door in as being a a reader in a, a film buff. <laughs> that I would what really got me to write this novel is I was a I was a film critic for two years here with the Free Times and the Edition, and I kept getting sent out to uh, review films thrillers that. I just couldn't believe they were getting made. I mean, I, um, and then I eventually saw one that I thought was great, which was Sea of Love with Al Pacino. Um, I thought, boy, you know, I'd like to do better than all these, and I'd like to do almost as well as this. And I thought, why not sit down and try writing it, which I did. And very fortunate to get a, a terrific agent and, a, and go with a very, very good uh, publishing house on this novel. A lot of revisions when you're writing. It's not like uh, on TV where the guy sits down and starts typing and uh, he just goes <laughs> to town. Some writers, I think, can write that way. Dean Koontz and Stephen King, I don't think they revise that much. Uh, they're at a place where they can just see that paragraph before they write it. I write much slower than that, but I was very fortunate that uh, when I got my initial manuscript back from... Uh, from Simon and Schuster, there weren't that many weren't that many marks on it. Um, mm -hmm. Some structural changes and a couple of words that they didn't like. Um, but I was very fortunate to work with Michael Corda, who's the editor in chief there and a legendary name in publishing. And uh, he made some interesting comments and suggestions. Um, 
And then my editor, Chuck Adams, who also edits Mary Higgins Clark and Jackie Collins and Kinky Friedman and all these people, uh, said, I think this should be there, that should be there. And, um, you know, when, when you're dealing with someone who puts people on the bestseller list, you go, okay, <laughs> good idea. <laughs> and <laughs> I went true. along with them. And uh, they, they had a large part in structuring the book. Mm -hmm. But not a lot of revisions, no. Huh. Now, it's, it's kind of like the great American dream to, to write your own novel mm -hmm. and to, to have it published and everything and have people read it and, and enjoy it. But there's a lot of rejection in this business. Uh, sure. How do you get past that? And, and, and did you run into a, a lot of roadblocks in, uh, you know, before the, the book went to print? Not really. I know writers that will hear this and kill me, but uh, <laughs> this was my first manuscript of my first novel, and, uh, and I sold it. And uh, there's as much serendipity in that as talent or, or timing or anything. Uh, I think I wrote the right book at the right time. Um, the glut of serial killer type stories I think has happened uh, my agent said under no circumstances write another serial killer book and I'm going to listen to her mm -hmm. um, but I would say the rejections w would and do come in f in my career in, in form of reviews I mean I would say 80% of the reviews of Deviant Way have been <coughs> excuse me positive mm -hmm. um, but I've gotten a few zingers too you know along the way and uh, and that hurts. I mean, if you write a nonfiction book and someone wants to challenge your facts, you can point to the book and say, you know, here it is. Uh, mm -hmm. But with fiction, it's so personal that uh, when someone criticizes it, it's like calling your kid ugly or something. <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't know how to react to it, so you basically stay quiet. But uh, I, I've been very fortunate. I haven't, I haven't faced that much rejection in this business yet, although I hope to have a very long career, and that probably will happen. <laughs> I, I would be sure of it. What's your advice to uh, kids? We have a lot of kids listening to the mm -hmm. station, and uh, you know they're in high school or whatever, and they're sure. getting ready to head to their chosen career. There are a lot of writers out there too, and mm -hmm. there aren't a whole lot of writing jobs. How? Uh, what about someone who wants to be a novelist or uh, write a whatever, uh, maybe a, a nonfiction book or mm -hmm. how-to book or whatever? Well, um, I'd say there's really two paths. One is. Uh, if you're studying journalism, you're going to work. You're going to want to work for a newspaper. You're going to work, want to work for a magazine. Um, I, I did neither. I mean, I started as a freelance writer, um, and I would say, shoot high. You know, in the profession, the first essay I ever wrote, I sent to GQ, and I mailed it, and it was like in my mailbox by the time I got back. <laughs> it was that fast, and I thought. Wait a minute! It was it was great. What, what's going on here? Uh, and then I talked to a few people, and I said, start locally. So I. Um, I wrote something for the Sunday Magazine here, for the Plain Dealer Sunday Magazine, and it was accepted. And I continued to, to write for them for a few years, um, on and off. And then went to Cleveland Magazine and Avenues, Northern Ohio Live, and um, just about all the local publications. So, number one, start locally. Mm -hmm. And uh, even if you're writing for a newsletter, a pamphlet, just get your name in print, then that's one clip. And then you sell your next uh, piece based on that clip. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say that. Um, now, those who have you know, aspirations to write books, um, all I can say is write it. Uh, have an idea where you're going. Uh, if you're writing a novel, don't do what I did. Write three complete chapters and know what you're doing. Um, and then go after an agent first. Because the, uh, the number of authors who become successful throwing it over the transom at a publishing house, you can count on one hand. Um, I never, ever would have gotten my manuscript to Michael Corda without an agent. Uh, she's in New York. She knows she has lunch with these people, and mm -hmm. that's just the way to go. Well, they, they used to say that unless you had an agent, uh, you couldn't... Uh uh, get your uh, manuscript published, but mm -hmm. uh, agents didn't want to uh, take on uh, authors who had hadn't been published. It's like, kind of like a catch twenty two. I thing. know it is, uh, but they're they're always looking for that next John Grisham, that next Scott Turo, that person who uh, will come up with their first or second or third book and just make them a zillion dollars. And uh, they really do read. Um, 
I would stay away at all costs from agents who charge. Um, and if you pick up a writer's market or a literary marketplace, that's that's clearly delineated there. Um, they charge $100 to read 50 pages. Or you can spend $2,000 to have your manuscript written and critiqued. Wow. And unfortunately, a lot of people do. And um, that's what your friends are for. That's what your family's for. And they'll do it for free. Uh, <laughs> mine did. You know, you force them to. <laughs> you cook them dinner. They'll, they'll read it. Um, but an agent... An agent will be blunt with you, and um, my agent uh, took me on and uh, and did a great job for me, and and also helped shape the book because I did not approach her with a complete manuscript. I just had three pages, and I would send her forty, and then I would send her a hundred uh, more, and she would say, "I think you're going in this direction. You might want to go here." So I was very fortunate to work with an agent as I was writing it. Mm-hmm. Um, know where you're going with a novel. Write three really good chapters rewrite them, then rewrite them again, then rewrite them again, and then write the best cover letter you can write. Um, make your cover letter sound like jacket copy of books. Take your five favorite novels, read the jacket copy, and try to describe your story that way, and you'll have a good cover letter. Hmm. Good advice, good advice. When you're, when you're just starting out and your kid's in school, let's say, does it help to have like a A's in, in English courses through all the way through high school? Or if you don't have A's, <laughs> can you forget being a good writer? Um... Okay, how should I answer that? <laughs> no, you, you, you don't have to have A's in English. Um, it helps to, you know, have fairly good grammar and fairly good punctuation, although that will not prevent you um, from becoming a published writer. I probably worked with four different copy editors at Simon & Schuster on my book, and they, you know, they made the commas and the semicolons where they should be. And so if you do get published, there are going to be, if you're with a, a good house, a lot of people between you and the printed page because they realize how it reflects on them. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that when, and I've read lots of typos and lots of published novels, and I think it reflects more on the publishing house than the writer. But for those that don't understand a process, it may look like the writer did this. So um, it helps, but I would say B's and C's you could probably get away <laughs> with. You know, the, the main thing is, is the ability to tell a story and you know, never, ever sacrifice the story for style because no one's ever going to remember your style in five years they won't say wow he turned such a great phrase but if you tell them a good story with living breathing characters they'll they'll never forget you and they'll come back for the next book Mm. when is deviant way the movie gonna come out boy i hope so um don't know a few people are looking at it now uh simon and schuster is is a paramount company so that's sort of built in there that helps a little bit yeah a little bit uh (laughs) so I, i would think they might have first refusal on it um uh, on the other hand, it prob- had there not been such a glut of serial killer type movies, I probably would have sold this in manuscript form. Uh, what I think the movie folks are waiting for is some good reviews and some good sales, and they'll think, they'll say, hopefully, well, let's just do one more. Um, 99% of the books that are optioned for film never get made, so getting optioned is the first step. Um, and then after that, hopefully, they'll make it into a film. I've tried to preclude that by writing my own screenplay. I wrote an original screenplay, uh, not based on the book, but um, also set here in Cleveland. Um, it's gone through its first read. I've gotten very good reaction to it and set right in the Cleveland Police Department again. So uh, I, I think, like I say, this is a terrific place to set fiction. I mean, and it's so underused. And uh, maybe the more I write about it, and this is probably the bad news, more writers will, will come here and set their <laughs> books here, and I'll have all that competition. Hope and, not. That's true. Growing up, growing up in Cleveland, I guess... Uh, City is full of a lot of characters. Oh that's for, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's for sure. And and you know, there's so many different parts of town. There's wealthy parts of town, poor parts of town. Mm-hmm. I mean, we uh, we're, we're you know, like any big city, just a little bit smaller. You know, and 
you know, I know folks in uh, Western Pennsylvania who consider this the big town. Yeah. And they come here and they, uh, they'll go to Pittsburgh, they'll go to Cleveland to party. Well, on that note, we want to thank you for talking with us today. Which I appreciate it. I had a good time. Crime novelist Richard Montaneri, the author of several books in his Cleveland series. They are Deviant Way and Kiss of Evil. In the Philadelphia series, he's author of The Rosary Girls, The Skin Gods, Merciless, Badlands, The Echo Man, The Killing Room, The Stolen Ones, The Doll Maker, and Shutter Man. Also, Richard Montaneri has penned two standalone novels, The Violent Hour, a thriller featuring freelance writer Nikki Stella, and The Devil's Garden, a psychological thriller introducing New York District Attorney Michael Roman. Well, I hope you found this podcast interesting and informative. If you did, please tell your friends and feel free to subscribe. Thanks so much for listening. Bring your finances into the 21st century with a My Checking account at Nationwide Bank, powered by Axos. My Checking is designed so you can bank on your terms. This account offers unlimited domestic ATM fee reimbursements, no monthly maintenance fees, and no minimum balance requirements. Nationwide Bank offers Direct Deposit Express, so you can receive your paycheck up to two days earlier. Plus, there's a free app so you can bank on your phone no matter where you are. Open a new My Checking account at krobcollection.com and receive $20. If you are a new Nationwide or Axos Bank customer and deposit $500 into your account within 90 days. Nationwide is on your side with a $20 gift for opening a free My Checking account powered by Axos. Get full details at krobcollection.com. Welcome to Ken's Corner. I'm Ken Robinson. Teen smoking remains a major concern in America. Anti-tobacco advocate Gustavo Torres. In the last 20 years, we've reduced youth smoking rate more than half. But unfortunately, the high school smoking rate in this country is still at 15.7%. So while we've made a lot of strides, there still is a large amount of young people falling victim to the tobacco industry's slick marketing. Torres thinks changing the age at which people can legally buy cigarettes to 21 would greatly help their cause. 95% of smokers started before the age of 21. So if we could raise the minimum sale age, we could help to protect even more young people from starting and more so being on the way to to make that next generation tobacco-free. Though some states and counties have changed the age to legally buy cigarettes to 21, it remains at 18 in the majority of the country. The American Academy of Pediatrics is recommending pediatricians screen for poverty at checkups. Dr. Bernard Dreyer is president of the AAP. Children are the poorest age group in our society over Uh, One in five children is living under the federal poverty level, and almost one in two uh, children are poor or near poor. Dr. Dreyer says pediatricians can take each category of poverty at a time. If uh, pediatricians are not yet screening, we're saying just pick one aspect to screen. You know, if you're interested in food, just pick food insecurity and see if you can help families with that. You don't have to fix everything. Dreyer is also telling federal budget cutters that food stamps, earned income tax credits, and the Head Start program help children living in poverty. Without those programs, instead of one in five children, there would be one in three children living in poverty. Thanks for stopping by Ken's Corner. And please subscribe to our podcast series, The Ken Robinson Shows.